I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we string together the many various topics of the Bible to discover the underlying principles. This week, we reach the end of the expansion of the Ten Words, or the Ten Ideals, commonly called the Ten Commandments, but never actually called the Ten Commandments in the Bible. That is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Since chapter 6 of this book, we have been examining each of these ideals as they are presented in the book of Deuteronomy. And since we have reached the second half of the ten, we've been examining the parallels that exist when we compare the first five ideals with the second. In the beginning, these comparisons are simple. I am Hashem your God and do not murder. The idea that connects these is to not deny the existence of another. And these two words delve into how this base ideal is played out in the various realms of reality, the spiritual and the physical. The second and the seventh ideal, do not create idols to worship or bow down to other gods and do not commit adultery. Once again, this ideal is easy to spot as this correlation is called out all through scripture. Idolatry is equated to adultery over and over again. In fact, it is the repeated use of this metaphor in scripture that is the initial clue to recognizing that this convention of parallelism exists in the ten words in the first place. The third and the eighth ideals do not take God's name in vain, a command that we saw has more to do with living your life according to God's character than it does to anything that you speak, and do not steal. As we compare these ideas, we discovered that taking God's name entering into his covenant, telling the world that you are his, and then not living up to his character and reputation is the same thing as theft in the physical world. Because Hashem has only one thing that can be taken by humans, and that is his name. And as we saw in Exodus, his name is much more than simply the word that we assign to him to identify him. The fourth and the ninth, keep the Sabbath and do not bear false witness. Through this correlation, we discover that keeping the Sabbath is the first line of witness to the world of the God that we serve. He created the Sabbath at creation. He sanctified the Sabbath and made it holy. And his son, Yeshua, is Lord of the Sabbath. And so when we read of the Lord's Day in Revelation, which day is Yeshua the Lord of? Certainly not Sunday. It's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is our first witness to the world of who we worship and who we serve. And that brings us to the fifth and the tenth ideals. And this one can be a bit difficult to pin down and discern. And it's this command that the process of parallel comparison might on the surface seem to break down. How can honoring our father and mother be connected to do not envy your neighbor's things? And to answer this, we must sit back and spend some time contemplating these ideals in tandem. And it helps to examine the tenth ideal first.
So what is envy? Simply put, envy is the desiring the things or the lifestyle of another that is combined with a feeling of dissatisfaction or resentment of those who have what you want. This is the keeping up with the Joneses or the grass is always greener on the other side mindset. Where I am at is not good enough. I want what they have no matter who they is. My life would be better if it looked like theirs. And envy is a very destructive force as it is envy that leads to the transgression of each of the other commands. And so how does this connect to dishonoring your parents? Well, the simple fact is that your parents are the source of who you are as a person. Whether that parent is simply the donor of the biological material that you are made up from, or the people who raised you and cared for you when you were young. Both types of parents, both the nature and nurture parents, are included in this. And bringing dishonor to them demonstrates that you desire for these people to no longer be your parents. Again, we see a desire for things to be different than they are. And it is in this that we find the connection between these two ideals. In both cases, we are rebelling against the way that things are. We are making the statement that our lives will be better if reality was different than it is. When we dishonor our parents, we are rebelling against who it is that has made us into who we are. We get our DNA from our parents. We get our education from our parents. We get our values, our financial status, our work ethic, and so much more from our parents. When we rebel against our parents, we are rebelling against our creators and saying that we wish that creation itself were different than it is. We deny the reality that Hashem is the source of the personal world that we live in. Now, this is the same thing that happens when we covet what others have. We are rebelling against our reality. We are claiming that our existence would be better. We ourselves would be better under different circumstances under circumstances of our own choosing rather than the circumstances of God's choosing. Our lives would be better under someone else's circumstances. Just give me their house or their car or their labor-saving devices or their friends or their spouse, and my life will be better. And it is this that underlies these two commands. The fact is that the world is the way it is. It can be changed for the better, but that starts with recognizing where you are at and working from there. There are no shortcuts. You are who you are. Accept that. Then, if you don't like that, you can work to change within these circumstances. Because your neighbor, well, he got to where he is because of the circumstances of his birth and then the application of his own will within those circumstances. And if your circumstances are not what you desire them to be, then apply your will to the betterment of yourself. That is the only way that your life will improve. And that is the only God-approved way for improving your circumstances. But when you do so, always be sure that you consult God and ask if the thing that you are shooting for is worth what it will take to get there. And that is what we will be examining today, because envy... Envy goes a bit further than simply wanting what your neighbor has. And to discover just how far this topic goes, we need to turn to Deuteronomy and read this week's Parsha. 
Deuteronomy 24.5-25.19 When a man has taken a new wife, let him not go out into the army, nor let any matter be imposed upon him. He shall be exempt one year for the sake of his home, to rejoice with his wife whom he has taken. No one takes in pledge the lower or the upper millstone, for he would be taking a life in pledge. When a man is found kidnapping any of his brothers of the children of Israel and treats him harshly or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die. Thus you shall purge evil from your midst. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy to diligently guard and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, teach you. As I have commanded them, so you shall guard to do. Remember what Hashem your Elohim did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Mitzrayim. When you lend your brother alone, do not go into his house to get his pledge. Stand outside and let the man to whom you lend bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, do not sleep with his pledge. By all means return the pledge to him at sundown, and he shall sleep in his own garment, and shall bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before Hashem your Elohim. Do not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy of your brothers, or of your strangers who are in your land within your gates. Give him his wages on the same day, and do not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and lifts up his being to it, so that he does not cry out against you to Hashem, and it shall be sin in you. Fathers are not put to death for their children, and children are not put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Do not twist the justice of a stranger or the fatherless, nor take the garment of a widow. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Mitzrayim, and that Hashem your Elohim ransomed you from there. Therefore I am commanding you to do this word. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. Let it be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, so that Hashem your Elohim might bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, do not examine the branch behind you. Let it be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean behind you. Let it be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I am commanding you to do this word. When there is a dispute between men, and they shall come unto judgment, and they shall be judged, and the righteous declared righteous, and the wrongdoer declared wrong. And it shall be, if the wrongdoer is to be struck, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and be struck in his presence with the number of blows according to his wrong. Forty strikes he gives him, but no more, lest he strike him with many more blows than these, and your brother be disgraced before your eyes. Do not muzzle an ox while it is threshing. When brothers dwell together and one of them has died and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not become a stranger's outside. Her husband's brother does go into her, and shall take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears does rise up for the name of his dead brother, so that his name is not blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He does not agree to perform the duty of my husband's brother. The elders of his city shall then call him and speak to him, and he shall stand and say, I have no desire to take her. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders and remove his sandal from his foot, and shall spit in his face and answer and say, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called, 
the house of him who had his sandal removed. When men fight with one another, a man and his brother and the wife of one shall draw near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one striking him, and shall put out her hand and take hold of him by the genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye does not pardon. You shall not have in your bag different weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. And you shall have a perfect and a right weight, a perfect and a right measure, so that they prolong your days in the soil which Hashem your God is giving you. For all who do these and all who do unrighteously are an abomination to Hashem your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your back, all the feeble ones in your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when Hashem your God has given you rest from the enemies all around in the land which Hashem your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. Now I've stated before that there is a lot of overlap in the various commands that are given in each of the sections of Deuteronomy and the ideal that each command fits under. Now we've seen this before with various commands that fit snugly under multiple categories in the Ten Ideals. We saw this back in chapter 19, verse 16 through 19, a passage that deals with malicious witnesses that are being brought against another. And our mind says, well, this command should be situated under the heading of do not bear false witness. But that is not where this passage is found in the organization of Deuteronomy. Instead, this passage was found in the section dealing with murder and the distinction between justified and unjustified killing. Or in chapter 22, 17 through 21, the passage on the man who brings an abusive charge against his wife that she was not a virgin. Again, this could fall under false witness, but then it could also fall under murder as the penalty described, if the charge is found to be true, is death. But this command is found in adultery, and while this does make a lot of sense to us because the charge was that the woman had been intimate with another before her marriage, we must also recognize that this overlap does still exist. And so as we go through each of these commands, we find that a large quantity of the commands that we read in the course of Deuteronomy work in this way. Now, I'm sure that many of you have seen the graphic, the meme that's floating around out there on the interwebs, of the flow chart of the commands, as I call it. At the top, there are two boxes, love God, love your neighbor. Then underneath these, there are 10 boxes with the 10 commands in them under the first two. In this chart, the first four of the commands are connected to the love God, and the final six are connected to love your neighbor. And we've seen that that's not quite correct, but regardless, it doesn't matter. Under this, however, there are many then clear-cut lines that flow from each of the Ten Commands and then go into where each of the other commands that we find in Scripture fall in the Ten Commandments. And this visual, while helpful in recognizing that all of the commands of the Torah are subsets of the Ten Commands, which are subsets of the Two Commands, which are then subsets of the One Command, love. The one who loves fulfills the Torah, right? But this chart is not completely accurate. The lines that connect the many and various commands of the Torah to the Ten Commands, if we were to draw them out, they would look more like a web. And we see this clearly in the Ten themselves. Is honoring your parents a love of God or love of others command? And the answer to that is, well, yes, it is something that can be applied to both. Or how about theft? Is theft a command in itself or is it part of every other command? And the answer here too is, Yes, it is. And so 
One of the things that can drastically help us as we examine each of the commands of the Torah is to recognize that each command can potentially be part of multiple higher level commands. And when we see this, we can better understand what underlies these commands, which then gives us better insight into applying these commands in our own lives. And so when we get to Deuteronomy 24, 5, we should stop and we should ask ourselves, where have we seen a similar command before? This particular command has to do with not forcing a newlywed man into military service or any other imposition on his time that goes beyond building a life with his new wife. In the modern world, things like jury duty would be included in this command, as it's an imposition that takes a man away from his family. But where have we seen a command that speaks of a man who is to be married and his entry into the military? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7 speaks of a very similar thing, but there is a slight difference. Chapter 20 deals with the man who is engaged to be married, but who has not yet completed the things that the ketuvah, the contract for marriage, outlined to be accomplished before the marriage. Chapter 24, however, then deals with the man who has been recently married. Both men were to be dismissed from military service, both the man leading up to his marriage and for a year after his marriage. The chapter 20 command being situated in the midst of the passage that's extrapolating the ideal of do not murder. The chapter 24 command then dealing with envying the man's youth, power, and skill, and more importantly, the future of his family for something as simple as military victory. The two commands connected to each other through circumstances, and both commands then legitimately falling under both of the ten words that we have seen so far. Now, in this case, the reason for this command is that in the ancient Near East, a newlywed couple were expected to have conceived their first child before the first year was over. A woman who did not conceive in her first year was thought to be barren. This is why in 1 Samuel, Hannah was thought to be barren. But then, after the birth of Samuel, she goes on to have many other children. Hannah had passed that first year and likely many other years before she conceived Samuel, and it was the cultural shame of barrenness that drove her to make the vow that she made to give Samuel to the tabernacle. And so this time was to be set aside for the couple to make as many attempts at conception as they desired, for the sake of their home, and for the sake of building a family. If a man was taken from his wife in the first year and she had not conceived before then, then the outcome would have been just as devastating for the woman and the man's legacy as the command in chapter 20 described. Then the outcome would have been just as devastating for the woman and for the man's legacy as the command in chapter 20 described. And while the previous command specifically dealt with the fact that the man might die and leave a childless widow behind, this command isn't focused on that particular aspect. In this case, nothing is to be imposed upon the man. Why? Not because the man could die, but because any imposition would take the man from his home where he needs to be for the good of his wife and his family's future. This simple one-verse command encompasses so many ideas, and it's based on a lot of ancient Near East perceptions and understandings. So what then follows in these chapters is a list of very quick, one to three verse commands that might fall under multiple headings. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time from here on out tracking just where we've seen these connected commands in the course of Deuteronomy. I trust that my listeners are intelligent and they enjoy Bible study, 
So this is one of the simple areas where you can sharpen your skills at connecting verses through theme, word, or idea. So verse 6 speaks on taking a pledge. What is a pledge? A pledge is the collateral for the repayment of a loan. And when you take a pledge, don't take something that a person relies on for their livelihood. Don't take the vehicle of a man who works by driving. Don't take the hammer or the saw of a man who is a carpenter. And don't take the upper or lower millstone, especially because the stone is used for grinding grain to make bread, the staple food of Israel. If this is all a person has, they're poor. Don't take the food off their table. Verse 7 then speaks on kidnapping, which, as we looked at last week, was the command in this envy passage that most closely deals with theft, the theft of the freedom of another. Verse 8 and 9 then speak of the outbreak of leprosy. Now, when this happens, it is the duty of all the people to do all that the priests and the Levites taught them. Now, what the priests and the Levites taught on the subject would be rooted in the chapters dedicated to Zarot in Leviticus 13-14. through But the command includes a reminder of the scenario with Miriam that we read in Numbers 12. So the question is, why is this reminder included here? And what does obedience and an outbreak of leprosy have to do with envy? And to find the answers, we need to sit in the text for a while and to contemplate once again, comparing multiple passages. Now, the answer to the first question could be associated with how Miriam contracted leprosy in the first place. Hashem was displeased with her words and actions, and so this outbreak of leprosy was a sign of Hashem's disfavor. And so when anyone else has an outbreak of leprosy, this is a sign of disfavor from God, and so the person is to be exiled from the community until it is cleared up. Or is the issue that we are to recognize in the story of Miriam to be what happened to her after she contracted leprosy? You see, Miriam was the first lady, as it were, of Israel in the wilderness. She was the top female and a prophetess to boot. She was an important person with a lot of honor. And yet when she contracted leprosy, she was still exiled from the people regardless of her position and her honor. And so of these options, both are potentially valid, but I think that the second is the one that we are to learn from. I think that this particular command in verse 8 through 9 is speaking to those who have either contracted leprosy themselves or are the family and close relatives of the one who has leprosy. And the connection to envy here being that the person is to obey without question and not act in a way that is envious of the lifestyle of the healthy. Well, I don't want to leave. You can't make me leave. This is my house, my wife, my land. I won't do what you say. The person who acts in this way is placing themselves in the position of authority. The connected command of honoring authority comes to mind, and this person is endangering those that are close to them and even the community as a whole with their presence. Verse 10 through 13 then speaks again of the man who loans to another and the means of receiving the pledge for the loan. Don't go into the man's house to receive the pledge. This is to assume that the man will not follow through, or in the case when the man who received the loan does not follow through, then you are to go to the judges and follow proper channels of justice. Don't take it upon yourself to be the one who pursues justice. There are proper channels of authority in place. And the poor man who gives you a pledge? 
Well, if he's truly poor, then the only thing of value that he can't live without is his undergarment. The clothes that were worn under the street clothes. It was this undergarment that people slept in in the ancient Near East. And if this is all that a man has to offer and pledge, don't take it and sleep in it yourself. Rather, return it to him before nightfall so that he can sleep in it and so that he blesses you. Verse 14 through 15, then speak of the person who hires a day laborer. If he comes and works for you, be sure that you pay him that day. People in this position of day laborer would often live from day to day on the wages that they made for the day. Day laborers were considered to be part of the poor class. And if a poor man worked for you for a day and you don't then pay him immediately, there is a real possibility that he or his family might go hungry that night after a full day's work for you. You, in your comfort, with your full belly, received benefit from him, but you have delayed to return the benefit back to the laborer. Verse 16, a son should not be put to death for the sins of his father in a court of law, and parents are not to be put to death for the sins of their children. Do not envy vengeance so badly that you would punish a person who is not responsible simply because they're related to the offender. Now there is some confusion in this verse, as this verse is applied to Hashem himself. And the case is often made that it is because of this command that the statement that we find in other places that the sins of the father will be visited on the third and fourth generation is then a contradiction. See, this verse about the sins of the father cannot mean what we think it means because of what we read here in Deuteronomy. But we have to realize that these two verses, they're speaking of different things. What is being spoken of here is making a son or a father stand before a judge and take the punishment or penalty for what a relative did because their relative is not available for punishment for whatever reason. A man murdered another man and then ran? Well, don't take his son and kill his son in the pursuit of justice. But the verse in the sins of the father being visited speaks more of the fallout of living in a sinful household will have on younger generations. Children of alcoholics tend to become alcoholics. Children of abusers tend to become abusers. Children of idol worshippers tend to remain idol worshippers. What is happening here is not punishment for sins being visited. It's the tendency of the children to continue in those sins being visited. And so they become do their own justice in their own right because they continue to follow in the sins of their father. Now, I opened with examples of where we can compare various commands to each other and draw conclusions based on the comparisons of like commands. But this particular command provides for us an example of just how to go about this process, because we can't simply say, well, they are alike, and so they speak to the same thing. We must be careful to examine every aspect of each command, and in the differences, you might find the thing that completely disconnects one from the other. And this is part of the process of study. We must be able to connect scriptures through the various hyperlinks, but we cannot always assume that this makes them corollary passages. Often, two connected passages are contrasts as well. We have to be open to the possibility of contrast when we find these correlations, which means serious study and contemplation. Verse 17 then deals with matters of justice and seems to be speaking directly to judges. Again, we find a command to the expansion of the fifth command, which dealt primarily with the proper use of authority. 
In this case, justice is not to be perverted because of who a person is. This time, rather than a person seeking to be another through envy, we find an authority over another acting in envy because of who the person is. Are they poor? Well, don't judge them unrighteously because of their poverty and shame, giving them too much leniency or being too harsh because of their station. Are they a gare? They don't look like you? Well, don't be racist and judge them because of their origin. Instead, look at the content of their character and their actions and judge solely on that factor alone. And this command comes with reminder as well. Remember, you once lived in a nation that was not your own. You didn't fit in with them. And when they turned against you only because of where you were from and not based on what you were doing, I, Hashem, was required to rescue you from them. The implication here being that if you treat others in such a way, treating them harshly or judging them solely based on where they're from or how they look or their current station of life, then you are acting no differently than Egypt, and you might be on the receiving end when Hashem comes to free them from you. And finally, in chapter 24, we read a repeat of a command from Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. When you harvest, do not harvest the entirety of the crop. Go through it once and then leave what was missed or what grew up after for those who have nothing. Don't envy that little bit of extra profit that you may gain from this field so that you take food out of the mouths of those who need it. And again, we see another twist put on the concept of envy. This time, rather than it being a man who envies what belongs to someone else, it describes a situation where a man can be envious of what would be considered his own property. It is so easy to say, but that produce was mine. I worked the soil. I planted the seeds. I tended and weeded and watered when needed. And now you tell me not to take it all? To leave it behind for those who did nothing? And the answer is yes. Remember, 10% of what you make does not belong to you anyway, and the land was never yours. It is Hashem's. Don't envy the portion that He has set aside for those who find themselves in a vulnerable class. And the leftovers that go to the poor, well, they will become a blessing to you. So give it freely and you will be blessed. And that brings us to chapter 25, the close of the expansion of the 10 ideals, but not the close of the chapters of commands in the book of Deuteronomy. And this chapter begins with a scenario where a man is judged guilty of a crime and the punishment of lashes is handed down for the transgression. When this happens, the judge that passes down the sentence is to be present during the punishment to ensure that it is carried out exactly as handed down. And Hashem sets a limit on just how many lashes are to be meted out to this man. 40. Never over 40. If a punishment requires more than 40 lashes, then it's capital punishment. For a punishment that is not to kill a man, then do not go over 40. And why 40? Well, the text says that it is so that a man is not degraded before your eyes. The word translated as degraded in my translation is a variation on the word kala, which means to be dishonored or disgraced. By connotation, this word can mean to treat with contempt or as something that is vile. The idea here being that you have punished the wrong with 40. 
You have lowered this man in the eyes of everyone through this punishment. You have already humbled him. Do not add to this by making him less than human. He is your brother, and he is a human. If you are not going to kill him for the crime, then don't kill his humanity and completely destroy his reputation among his brothers. Verse 4 then gives a one-shot, short statement of how to treat animals while they work. And we saw the same topic stated just last chapter in the case of hired day laborers. Be sure that you reward your workers when reward is due. Well, in the case of animals, their pay is to eat. So don't force an animal to work for your food and not allow them to eat food in the process. It's cruel, and you'll end up with a stubborn animal that doesn't want to work. And is this verse that Paul extrapolates in 1 Corinthians 9 as an appeal to the church to be sure to care physically and financially for those who work on their spiritual behalf. Don't neglect to give to your church leadership and to those who serve in the spiritual realm. Forcing a minister of the gospel to work in their calling without paying them is the same as working an ox while muzzled, or forcing a day laborer into the field when you have no intention to pay them for their work. Don't be so envious and greedy for your money that you fail to compensate those who work on your behalf. Reward those that you benefit from spiritually and physically, even if it's just an animal. In verse 5, we read a command that is very odd to modern Westerners, but this practice is one that was designed to protect women who had lost a husband and had not had any children. Now, I've mentioned it before, but in the ancient Near East, there were no good options for a woman who was unmarried and without any family to support herself. Now, this is neither right nor wrong. It simply is the way it was. And because of this fact of life, this command was needed. It's one of the many ways that widows were to be protected. So while marrying your brother-in-law might sound pretty distasteful to many of you women, please understand that marrying your sister-in-law is just as distasteful to many of us men. But the point was not about whether you desired to marry the man or the woman. The issue was, is the house and the line of your brother going to cease from the land? Will he be shamed forever and pass away from memory because he had no heir? And the process that was used to combat this has become known as Leverite marriage. Now, this word has nothing to do with Levites, but rather it's derived from the Latin word for brother-in-law. With this command, it's not one in which no one gets an option. The marriage can be refused by the man if he does not desire to marry the woman. Unfortunately, the woman doesn't get a choice of the man, but alas, such was the state of the ancient world. Women didn't get to choose their mates. Now, when the brother or closest kinsman refused, there was a ritual that was to be done to the man as the sign that he had refused. The woman is to come to the man and remove his shoe from his foot. Now, the foot was the most shameful place in the ancient world, but that's not really what's being demonstrated in this ritual. Rather, the symbol here is that the foot and the sandal, they serve as symbols of sexual union. I'm pretty sure that you can figure out how this picture works. The woman removes her shoe from the man's foot, and then she, quote, spits in his face. Now, the word for face in Hebrew is the word panim, but it does not simply mean the front of your head where your eyes and your nose and your mouth exist. Rather, 
it speaks of being in the presence of another. And so the woman did not spit in the face of the man who refused. Instead, she spit on the ground in his presence. A shaming action, to be sure. Now again, I shouldn't have to paint the picture for anyone who's passed 8th grade health class in a public school. Each of these actions was a shaming action. Removing the sandal, spitting before someone, they are ways of casting shame on the one who has determined that there is something in his life that's more important to them than caring for their brother's legacy. And once again, we find this ritual occurring in the book of Ruth. Ruth, a Moabitess, married to a Hebrew in the land of Moab. Her husband then died in Moab, and then Ruth returns to the land with her mother-in-law. In the course of the story, she encounters her kinsman through her husband's line, Boaz. But Boaz is not the closest relative to her dead husband, and so the matter of Ruth's redemption is brought before the judges. And the closest relative is given the option and in turn turns down the option of marrying Ruth. And so this ritual is accomplished with Ruth as the woman going through the ritual. And the refusal by the kinsman then frees Boaz up to become her redeemer by becoming her husband and providing an heir. It was this command of leveret marriage that led to the birth of Obed, who was the grandfather of David. If it had not been for leveret marriage, the line of kings from David to Messiah, it would not have been as it is. Now, I'm not saying that they would not have happened at all. They would simply have been completely different than what we experience in our reality. And remember, we should not envy another reality. This is the one that we have. All of human history from that moment forward would have been different if there had been no command for leveret marriage. So we owe a lot to this weird command about marrying your closest in-law. And finally, this section closes with another set of quick commands. Two men fighting, and the wife of one of the men enters the fight and fights dirty? We'll take off her hand. Now, there's more going on here due to the nature of how the culture thought of the male member. But for the sake of time, uh, let's go ahead and move on. The, the woman envied a win for her husband and was willing to fight dirty and cast shame in order to do so. And then finally, there are those who engage in the measuring of weights and volumes there to have accurate measuring tools. You are not to cheat another through the use of an unequal weights and measures. It just seems as if this simply does not need to be said after everything that's been said about acting in justice. But alas, people being people, if it wasn't said, then there are many who would take this as a sign that it was permissible, and so it could be engaged in. And thus closes off the expansion of the ten words found in the book of Deuteronomy. But wait, says the observant reader, there is more. Yes, you are correct, there is more. There are three more verses to be explored before the end of the chapter and the Parsha. Three verses that remind Israel of Amalek. And again, there is one of those distasteful commands that smacks of genocide. But when we examine the situation holistically, we discover that there is a profile here for how the enemy acts towards those who are in Israel. If we look back to how this all began, it started with love God and then progressed to love your neighbor, and then it finishes with this. So let's ask, who is Amalek? What did they do? Why are we to remember what they did? 
Well, if we turn back to Exodus 17, we read the original story of Amalek's interaction with Israel. As Israel was on their way out of Egypt, before they'd even made it to Sinai, Amalek attacked Israel. Not only did they not meet them with bread and water, they attacked and killed some of the members of the community. In Exodus 17, we don't get any specifics on who or how they attacked, but here we learn something new, something that we didn't know before. When Amalek attacked, who was it that they specifically attacked? The weak, the weary, the stragglers, those who fell behind. This is how the enemy acts towards believers. The strong and the powerful in the faith, yes, sure, they will come under attack from time to time. But it is the weak that are truly vulnerable. Those who have been under immense pressure or who don't have strength. Those whose faith is faltering because of what they see around them. These are the ones that the enemy loves to finish off. Because if he can finish them off quickly when they're weak, then they won't ever come against him again. What is the responsibility of the community in this situation? Never leave a man behind. This is why we are told to love our neighbor, our brother. We shower our neighbors with love so that they do not fall behind, so that they do not get overwhelmed with the pressures of the world. We are to walk beside them and support them. Yeshua went back for the one who was being left behind and was vulnerable. We must, as Israel did, respond to the enemy's attack. We must stand in the gap for our weak brethren. We must be prepared to go to war. Now this is a great part of loving your neighbor, is fighting on their behalf when you yourself are not specifically in danger. Coming to their defense, not when they are in need of defense, but before they are in need of defense. It's recognizing that a brother is in trouble when they are falling behind, not just spiritually, but also physically. It's being purposeful in each other's lives for their benefit and the benefit of the community as a whole. Love for your fellow man means going to war against those who would seek to destroy the vulnerable in Israel. And the Torah speaks to this on so many levels. Provide for the needs of the vulnerable. Lift up and give honor to the shameful. Seek to restore the broken and give rest to the weary. But also recognize that there is an enemy that seeks to devour, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy Israel. And the weak are easy pickings. And so we are to engage the enemy. Like Moses, we are to engage the enemy spiritually, continually calling on Hashem to support our defense. Like Joshua, we are to engage the enemy on the battlefield, going to war in defense of our brothers. And it is this that is behind this final command of the portion of Deuteronomy that speaks to the ideal of loving your brother and neighbor. It's this that underlies the entirety of the Torah. Love God. That's defined throughout Scripture as keeping His commands. Love your brother. This is accomplished by becoming your brother's keeper providing for his needs, tending to his hurts, rescuing when he is drowning, fighting for him when he is under attack, and recognizing that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but our fight is against principalities and powers and forces of evil in heavenly places. It is this that undergirds these commands of the Torah. Love 
Love doesn't sit quietly by and tell you everything will be all right when you're under attack. Love stands up, defends, and fights for you. And through actions of mutual defense, we cannot just find life for ourselves, but we can pass life on to others, to our brothers and sisters who are hurt and wounded. So seek life in all that you do. Dereshkai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshkai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshkai as we seek life. Shalom.